Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We run courses online, self-paced and in-person, and we run mentorship one-on-one and group. So check out all details on tkex.org. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined again by Eric Purvis. He is a registered massage therapist, educator, and researcher based in Victoria, BC in Canada. We've had him on with a joint podcast with Jamie Johnson. So I highly recommend checking out that previous episode. And today we're gonna dive into some of Eric's story, his experiences as both a clinician and an educator over the years, some of the problems that he sees in MSK healthcare, some possible solutions, and touching on the value of some of the skills of critical thinking. So Eric, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on again. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, Daniel, thank you. I'm I'm honored to be here. It's uh, it's exciting. It uh, we we're just saying off air. I can't remember how long ago it was our last podcast, but it, it uh I it was, seemed to go really well and uh, I know we've chatted a little bit before, so I'm I'm excited to see where today's conversation takes us. And I've been an avid listener of your podcast, Eric Purves uh, versus um, Purves versus yeah, P U R V E S. Yeah, just my last name versus uh, yeah, and I started that because uh, Jamie and I retired our podcast last year or no beginning. Well, I guess everything's last year now. Um, <laughs> at the beginning of January 2023, or beginning of 2023, I think we retired ours and uh, I started mine uh, d- to keep it going. And uh, he's supposed to be doing his own one uh, coming up this year too. So yeah, exciting. Keep your ear open for that. Yeah. And also wanted to plug your manual and movement therapist community of had a, a look in myself personally and have seen some incredible names in there, Oliver Thompson, Peter Stilwell, Monica Noy, on a lot of topics that I personally find very useful and valuable and I wish there was more of. So credits to you for the efforts on creating that online community and we'll, we'll plug the, some of the details at the end of this episode, but just wanted to give a shout out now. That's amazing. I think we need more of this. Oh, well, thank you, Dan. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it's been a good a good project for the last three years, the manual movement therapist community, and as a way to uh, basically just an online educational community, kind of like uh, I, I my envi- my vision of it came from being at conferences and 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 you know having to travel and and spend a lot of money and time and you know and it didn't know it's it wasn't an easy thing. So I thought, well, why don't I just bring these a lot of these same presenters online so people can access the same information at it like a fraction of the cost. And so, yeah, the manual movement therapist community was my, my way to try and do that, um, to try and bring in different presenters and, you know, research reviews and discussions. And, uh, it's been, it's been good so far and we're doing an intake right now until the end of January, uh, for new learners. So we'll have the contact information or the, the, the links for that, maybe in the show notes or something. Yes, absolutely. We'll share that in the show notes. Mate, um, the infamous question is what's your story. I'd like to, um, alternate sometimes with who are you? So all the existential crises included, um, start from where you'd like. What's your story? Who are you? What do you do? Yeah, well, you gave me a nice little introduction at the beginning there. Uh, f- yeah, so I've been involved in in healthcare and I guess our, our version of healthcare, MSK care in, in uh, Canada since 2006 is when I got my license. So I've, and I've had what I almost 18 years of, of clinical practice. Um, I, for a long time, I owned a large clinic in town. Um, and recently, well, as of about a year and a half ago, sold my shares in that. Uh, and to focus full-time on uh, continuing education. Uh, so teaching courses, 
doing some curriculum development work with uh, a college here in Canada, which has been really rewarding. And trying to, I keep saying like, I want to do, I want to write more papers. I want to do more, you know, research kind of stuff. And I have, I think one published paper and I have a few that are not published, but are mostly written. Uh, I would like to do more of those, um, but it's just a matter of time and priority. And obviously if something's not done, I figured, I just tell myself it's not a priority. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so my, 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 my main focus is, is on uh, really trying to, uh, bring the massage and manual therapy and movement therapy communities into modern practices, right? So uh, challenging the kind of status quo from where we came from and say, hey, look, historically, we do great work, right? But there's a lot of stuff that we know doesn't stand the test of time. There's lots of evidence and things that challenge that. Uh, and I think doesn't mean that we just have to throw everything away, but it means we can we can adopt new ideas or new narratives uh, with uh, into our professions and hopefully provide what I like to say is, is uh, higher value care or better quality care um, by inspiring RMTs, so our designation here in Canada, uh, to think differently and, and to, to be different in a positive way. So that's my long-winded explanation of who I am. Um, Outside of work, I'm a huge uh, soccer or football, depending on what part of the world you're in, uh, fan. I've played my whole life. I coach. Uh, and if I could do it all again, you know, that's I'm too old, I think, now to, to change things. But I would probably go. I probably would have wanted to make a go as like a professional coach. That's yeah. where that's that would be if I could live two lives and have a sliding door moment. That would have been the other thing I would have done. Um, so something i don't talk about openly uh, or very much yeah super interesting and i can imagine the transferability of a lot of the skills of coaching and guiding with uh, kind of constraints-led approaches with movement practice with even clinical practice working with patients who have persisting pain oh for sure 100 and this is what's so neat is like i mean i've got my developmental coaching like for for youth i got a, f a few levels of that but it's amazing how transferable that information is into like dealing with humans and just whether it's motivation or whether it's communication or whether it's appreciating the complexity of their situation, just like in pain. Absolutely. Um, and you're talking to a failed soccer, well, wannabe soccer, professional soccer player here. So um, oh, okay. we definitely nice. share that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> being my, my idol back in the day, Man United yes. and Real Madrid. But um, yeah. we'll, we'll save that for maybe another chat. Um, oh, we could talk, <laughs> I could talk about that forever. Yeah, I've been a lifelong Manchester United fan. And so the last 10 years has been hard. Down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, feel <laughs> there. I hear you. Um, yeah. If we look at MSK Healthcare from, from your perspective, and um, we're kind of part of a, a growing global community. And I think we can thank social media for connecting clinicians together who might be aware of evidence-based practice and all the buzzwords of pain science. Um, but from, from your standpoint, from what you've seen and heard, what do you feel are some of the biggest problems, challenges within MSK healthcare? Yeah, this is a good question because I'm like, where do I begin? Um, because and I'm glad we're going to talk about solutions because it's easy to complain about all the problems. But if we don't have a solution, then we're just, we're just whinging and it's not really doing anybody any good. Uh, one thing you, so I would say the, the biggest problem I see in MSK is 
uh, kind of this unyielding belief in, in structuralism and this constant uh, search for fixing. You know, there's um, these supposed fixes that people have. They're always kind of based on some like specific tissue or magical technique or specific protocol that someone's come up with. Right. It always claims to be the best. And this kind of structural tissue focus um, has its place, but I think it's 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 overly emphasized in too many cases. And I think we both agree there's evidence to support that as well as clinical practice that that's not the be all and end all, right? Uh, and so the problem I see with this heavy focus on structuralism is that we have an entire industry, right, and in, in MSK care that really revolves around fixing pain right, through correcting dysfunctions and through addressing supposed root causes of pain. And this idea, I feel, leads us down the wrong path of what it is that we should be doing, which is helping the person in front of us and not trying to fix them, but being there for them to try to find something that working with them to help them, right? Um, and because of this, you know, the, we'll put in air quotes here, the, the biggest, the biggest uh, problem is what I always ask learners in my courses is I say, how can one be right and the other be wrong? So name your favorite technique, name your favorite approach, name your favorite acronym, whatever it is might be. How can one be right and what and one be wrong? Like which approach or technique is best if they all claim to be best or they all claim to fix, right? And when we think of it, it actually makes no sense. So the, the 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 problems I see in MSK care are more that there's all these competing stories and narratives, and and they all are trying to help people, but they're coming at it from different ideas and stories, and there's not a cohesive like understanding about, you know, the human in front of us. Yeah, and that focus that, from that structural fix and away from the human helping, guiding, like we mentioned, coaching element it's so seeped into our teaching and learning and uh, university curriculums and from the from society cultural messages about pain 100 percent, right and we see we see that and it, and it comes from it's such a huge problem you know it, it's you know if we if we go back to you know clinical experience the majority of the chronic pain cases that, that have come through my doors over the years you know, are people that just really needed to be like supported and heard and like guided through uh, like a process through like a, like whether it was like a recovery process or where it was through an acceptance process or whether it was through a graded exposure process or whether it was through just like helping them find tools to manage whatever it was that was going on with them. And very little that had to do with like my magic hands. Right. And so by removing that focus on like fixing and putting the focus on like, how can we support this human? That is that is where we need to go, because until we do that, I think we're going to have this problem of that we see with people receiving really crappy care for pain. Yeah, the um, that idea that there's a magic exercise came up definitely my personal journey, as well as I, I see it still within the exercise or movement based uh, kind of modalities and interventions and the approaches it's still very much like strengthening or something mechanical 
like we're doing an exercise to fix something structurally and that's what will be the difference and that's what kind of uh this idea of it's superior to any passive modalities but when you look at the literature on on pain and what uh you know the, the little we know that with regards to mediating factors at least there's maybe something else um that can lead to that change so i think it's it's across the the whole spectrum of msk professionals and interventions this structuralism approach the body as machine um, philosophy it's so hard i think for people to even realize if we're kind of taught that way from the start it can be quite invisible to a lot of us and it takes time to kind of the term is crossing the chasm or being aware of oh maybe i don't need my magic hands or maybe i don't need my magic exercises or strength training or mobility drills um, what, what was that journey like for you personally, if you don't mind sharing that transition period of like, yeah. when do you first notice it, recognize it? Yeah, I'm happy to share. I, I, I'm, you know, I could talk about my journey here. Uh, no problem. The, I wish I said, I, I wish I could admit and, and be honest and say, I, I like I noticed it right away, but no, I, you know, I, I, I went in, I was heavily involved in, in, uh, things like structural integration and kind of myofascial approaches. And that was kind of the stuff I, I thought was interesting. That was the type of things that had been treated for me as an aspiring young soccer player and that worked for me. So therefore, of course, I'm, it's going to work for everybody that I, that I treat. Uh, but it was probably after about maybe six or seven years of practice where I was starting to see a lot of people in really severe pain and at the time, the clinic that I was working at, right next door to us, we had an interventional anesthesiologist, so like a pain specialist, because uh, we were in a medical building. And he would, people would come to see him, and they were, these were the people that like just weren't responding at all to anything, right? So they'd see him, and he would inject them, and he would give them drugs, and he would do procedures and nerve blocks and nerve ablations. And the people had some very, uh, I can say, aggressive interventions. And then he would send them to come see me and then we would just like, you know, massage them or try and encourage them to move or just sometimes it was just passively moving limbs because they were in so much agony. And things what I realized is that these people were seeing this guy who was doing all the things to fix them. And they weren't getting any better. And I found that if the less hard I tried like, I'd feel like I was doing nothing. People were actually responding. Actually, I felt pretty good for a couple of days. I haven't been pain-free for more than 10 hours. You know, I slept through the night and I thought, this doesn't make any sense. And, and so it started, I started asking questions of myself. I started asking questions with my my business partner at the time, uh, who's Richard, who, who's been on your, your podcast before, and and realized that I don't know anything. Right. And then to add on to that, around that time, my wife had had a significant uh, spinal injury and was in significant pain. And she had surgery and she had all the injections and everything. That, and, and it was fixed, right? Oh, you're fine. You're clear. But she still had pain. And so I thought, well, you fix, they fixed the problem, but you're still in pain. I see all these people over the last few years that are still in pain, yet there's nothing wrong that we can find out. I don't know what's going on. There's something that doesn't add up. And then through, I'm going to say just through luck, I, uh, I stumbled, uh, you know, I stumbled into some Facebook groups 
And I saw that other people were asking questions. And I would say that the, the, um, the social media game of a lot of those people at the time was pretty harsh, but it really got me thinking that, okay, so what you're saying makes more sense, more about these, you know, uh, like neurophysiological changes, these, these nervous system sensitivities, the, you know, the whole idea of like the nociceptive system, you know, which I, I was aware of, but I didn't really understand the nuances of it at the time, even now I still don't, but I know more than I did then. And, and that's what kind of got me that down that path. And so it was, I went to the San Diego Pain Summit for the first time in 2015, and that kind of really confirmed a lot of what I was um, suspecting and, and met a lot of great people that were very helpful. And it was kind of through that I went and I enrolled in a master's, uh, a master's degree, like that's fall, uh, like within six months after I was doing that. And then I spent the next three years studying and learning everything I could about pain and the role of manual therapy and movement therapy. And so that's kind of a long story about my journey is it started with like, things just didn't make sense. I wanted to understand. And I just was lucky enough to, to, to find a pathway that kind of got me to where I am now where I'm like, okay, I know more than I did. And I know enough to know that I still don't know enough. And that's okay. Wow, such a journey and hitting so many personal notes of seeing people affected by it. Like a personally and seeing the impacts and seeing how even the pain specialist with I'm sure lots of nerve related blocking agents and injections and invasive procedures and um, even then people still had pain so that something quite didn't quite add up something didn't make sense there was that uncertainty there was that doubt and then that sparked some curiosity to to see what else could explain why the heck it's actually the, the harder you tried, the, the, the almost worse it got or the, the less benefit there was and the, the more you kind of backed off, you found that there were people reporting more symptom relief. It sounded. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, exactly. And it, it was, it was the, the, the realization that, and seeing through these clinical experiences as well, that the more people got treated, the more people they saw, the more interventions they had from, you name whatever, it doesn't matter who the healthcare provider was, they go, they felt worse every time, yet they kept on doing it with the expectation. And, um, you know, the, one of the biggest aha moments for me clinically was to, to have conversations with people and to say, Do you, have you ever thought about maybe not being treated by so many people to see how that works for you and maybe trying one or two things that, that you like and seeing you know, you're doing your own little clinical studies there, right? You're doing your own little case studies and realizing that, you know, a lot of people get better when they back off. And then that, yeah, there's, so it's, it's really, I think it's something that people listening uh, would, would, would say, it's okay to just tell people just to take a break from treatment. If it's, if it's not helping them. Absolutely. I think having that opportunity to reflect on all the treatments that they've had and then see what's worked. For them and there might absolutely be some short-term symptomatic relief in a lot of the options but they've probably never had that conversation before with a clinician or had that space and time to actually see what has been working for them what's really been working if it has been working at all the assumption is always that more is better but uh it's always. such a common thread um, across the other side of the world as well i can 
about n equals one experience, but there is research showing that yeah, the, the more interventions or sometimes a lot of these approaches can have long-term harmful implications. Um, and that it sounds like for you, some of the change agents, you had a supportive kind of uh, community, a colleague, Richard McElmoyle, we can give him a shout yep. out. Um, you had a Facebook group as well. So an online community to, that you saw some, I guess, vicarious questioning um, and learning from uh, osmosis, I guess, being in an online community. And oh, I definitely agree that some of the approaches may have been a bit harsh with the critical criticism. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that, so that, would you say those were some of the change agents? What, did you, what do you feel were the, the change agents for you in your journey? Yeah, I would say, I think that's spot on there, Daniel. The, uh, definitely the social media was, was big. And because, you know, I didn't want to just believe people's stories because I believe people's stories before and they were wrong. But it was it was people sharing research and, and sharing, you know, like articles and stuff. And you read through them and you're like, OK, well, this is like you said, you know, there's some studies that show that people, the more they get treated, the worse their outcomes, you know, tend to be. Right. And you read some qualitative studies that look at like the people's experiences of, of, of their back pain and and why they feel that way. And those ideas were put in there by well-meaning clinicians. And we could go on and on. Um um, and and then when you start reading the, the research on, you think, okay, so there's something to this, the way these people are saying. And then when you try and uh, try and bring some of that stuff into your clinical experiences, and you start to see, not always favorable, more I would say more favorable results. It starts to say, okay, there's something to this. And then obviously, yeah, having having a, a clinic and, and a colleague that we're kind of going through this journey at the same time. And then as we expanded our clinic, we had more people there and more people having conversations. It was really good communal learning. That yeah, that reflective practice like, is needed to reflect on your experiences in clinic because it can be so easy to go down a confirmation bias rabbit hole and just um, remember the times where things have worked and then blame patients for being too lazy and not adhering to the treatment program if, if it doesn't work or if you never see them again. It's, um, I think that having that space for reflection and then that autonomy to practice and change the way that you practice, I feel, might have also been beneficial. Um, and I'm reflecting as well on my experience, that definitely was the case where we needed that autonomy to practice in a way that was maybe different to how we used to practice in the past with all the sunk cost of like, oh shit, now I'm not doing highly specific exercise drills anymore. And people think that I was, you know, a, a phony before, but <laughs> after that discomfort, I think there was a lot of hope and a lot of change and then some new learning along the way. Yeah, for sure. And that's the thing that I, I would really, I really want people to, in, in the courses I take or people listen to this podcast, even people that take the, the, the engage in the stuff that you guys put out there is that it's okay to admit that you didn't know that you made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. I don't think anybody came out of school like being like, I know everything. I'm amazing. I'm never going to screw up. It just doesn't happen. But be, be humble enough to say, Hey, you know what? Yeah, I screwed up. There's a lot of people I wish I could take those back, but you know, and going back to coaching, <laughs> uh, the learning, the, the biggest, your biggest learning moments are, are the failures you have, right? So how can you learn from those mistakes, right? And, and, and one of the, just as a side note to that, the, one of the, I think one of the biggest barriers for people to change, and I, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but up here in Canada, 
if people are fully booked and they have a full clinic schedule, they're like, oh, I'm not making any mistakes. I'm good. Like I, I'm like, I'm busy all the time. My, my patients love me. And you think, well, that's great. But that doesn't, of having a full practice doesn't mean that you're not deliver. That doesn't mean that you're not making mistakes. It doesn't mean that you are, you know, you couldn't be providing better care. And I think that's, that's the thing too. And I want people to listen to say, Hey, you know what? You have a full practice. Doesn't mean you're doing shitty work. We love to swear. Doesn't mean you're doing crappy work. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Swearing. it means, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it just means that, you know, reflect on it and say, Hey, you know what? Why am I busy? Am I busy because I'm really good? Am I busy because you know, I'm giving people what they need? Am I busy because, you know, uh, I have a good personality, but you know, maybe I'm busy and, and, and it, it, it might not 100% be that I am doing evidence-based care as best I can. And that's okay. But I think it's important for us to reflect on that. I yeah. did. And, and it changed my mind. Absolutely. The assumption that your calendar is a reflection on your self-worth or worth as a clinician, that's a really tricky one. And I, I'm just reflecting on the environments that I was in where I was given that opportunity to, to reflect on what I kind of deemed as success or what I felt was right for me in terms of my own, uh, the kind of clinician that I wanted to be, because it's so easy to compare ourselves to colleagues that have kind of repeat bookings. So this like, idea that our clinical success or our success as a clinician is reflected on our calendar or reflected on the amount of clients, patients that come back. Um, and there's a lot of nuance to it that can be quite invisible to a lot of us, unless we have that critical thinking, I'll say that capacity to reflect the, the kind of questions asked. And it's a tough one when you're in that system where it, it's hard, you're back to back, you don't have the time to reflect, let alone to read articles, let alone to have supportive colleagues that can ask you compassionate, honest, critical questions. Yeah. And, and that's hugely valuable. And, and that's the thing too, is, is everyone's busy, right? So you're working to make a living and then you've got a family, you've got other activities, things you're doing in life. And then you're like, who's going to sit, who's going to spend the time to during their lunch hour before, after work to read some systematic reviews or to, you know, it just doesn't, it's, it's, it's hard. Right. And then, so it's not, it's not easy. And then um, I, I get it. I think most of us get it and you have to be pretty, keen to want to take a deep dive into this stuff and I, it's not for everybody no, and research in itself the ability to translate it to understand it um, to contextualize it with the body of literature that that's also its own, own skill set and even people who are full-time researchers can get it wrong so i think that that's also important to acknowledge and i know we're, we're sticking on the problems but hopefully this is useful to uh, bring light and, um, and honesty to some of the difficulties in reality of being an evidence-based clinician because it can be very hard in particular in certain circumstances and situations. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and and yeah, so we can, yeah, we can talk about the problems and, and yeah, there is, there is solutions. I mean, I, I think, you know, and, you know, and, but I think the solutions though require a little more onus on the clinician to, you can't just be passive, right? So the solutions are for like, how do we be more evidence-based is, is, and how do we be an evidence-based clinician? I would say that the key thing is really is to adopt the evidence, like to embrace the evidence, but you don't have to know all the things, but know, you know, what, what the evidences say on like low back pain, 
and and whether it's the you know it's the the, the term that a lot of people don't like that maybe it's just like some mechanical or non-specific low back pain right what's what's the what's the the general prognosis for that what's the frequency of it what are the best practices for it if you just understand that and embrace like okay you know what time <laughs> support right encouragement you know reassurance you know rule out red flags you know you understand the basics of of these things for certain areas of the body or certain populations that you treat then then that's going to help to inform your 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 clinical reasoning it's going to help to inform your thinking and it it the solution i would say is to yeah for people to be more proactive and and to really uh, take a role in trying to learn uh, rather than just, you know, be passive and just say, okay, well, I don't know. It's too hard. Uh, yeah. but, it, but it's not that it's, it's, it can be time to me. It's not that hard. I don't think. Yes. And I think yes. you have an ethical obligation to do it. You, you said it. I think it's maybe my mind goes to normalizing the active nature of learning from the start. And yeah. even having conversations like this, where you've been in the game longer than me, and, and I'm sure you're still learning. And I think that the, the idea that it's an ongoing process, that there's never an endpoint, and um, like it, it's it's human and normal to make mistakes and to learn from mistakes, and it's um, an ongoing process to be evidence based. Because what we're saying now will likely be outdated in a handful of years. So. This is an ongoing journey of continually questioning what you're doing, continually staying up to date, uh, knowing that there's no finite endpoint of, okay, now I'm evidence-based, ticked, done. I can now use that from now on. It's an ongoing process. Yeah, 100%, I agree. And I think the easiest way for us to, the way that it was explained to me was that to be an evidence-based clinician, it, it's a philosophical process and engagement that is uh, independent of every, for each clinician to, 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 to be involved themselves in. I don't know if I said that well, but it's something along those lines. I was trying to remember off the top of my head. And, but it, it's, it's an, it's an, like you said, it's an active process and, and, and that's okay. And the, what I always like to tell learners and, and I, I tell myself this is that, um, you know, when you're about to learn or you're presented with information that you don't really understand or doesn't make sense to you or makes you feel uncomfortable, it's just like, Admit that you know nothing. I know nothing. Have a blank slate and say, look, I'm willing to absorb this information in so I can bring it in and then I can think about it. You know, rather than just putting your hands up and be like, no, that's too complex or that doesn't make me feel good. And you're all of a sudden stopping that, that flow of information coming in. Because when you when you open up your mind to to accepting new ideas or challenges, then that's how you grow. And that's the solution. That approach and attitude and intention of humility and open-mindedness that we could be very much wrong and there's something that we can learn from reading an article even though we may have a sense that we have a, a sense of confidence over it i think that's um, we, we tend to uh, latch on to things that we feel work so we can hold space for that confidence and also approach something new with uh, open eyes and an attitude that we can definitely grow and learn. And that's part of that journey. Um, my mind also goes to the university curriculum and how we are assessed. And I'm not sure what it's like in your neck of the woods, but a lot of the examination processes can still be based on some outdated 
principles when it comes to, in particular, uh, MSK pain. So would, would you say that that might also be a potential solution? We're talking like a, a system kind of wide solution here. Yeah, and that's 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 where I would that was <laughs> that was the thing I was going to go to next is is that it's it's a it's a systemic issue, right? They're the stakeholders that doesn't matter where you are in the world uh, are the ones that are the ones that creating the curriculum. They're the ones that are teaching it. They're the ones that are examining on it. They're the ones that are keeping licenses. That has to change. And I know there's probably I know there is some places in the world where they are changing things and there's some good universities out there and colleges that are doing good work, but I would say the majority of them are are outdated and they're 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 based they're teaching their content on more historical beliefs or 1980s science or maybe even older than that, right? Not in the newer stuff. So the 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 biggest fix starts with the entry to, to practice education. You know, because um, this is one. This is what I actually wrote my um, my university um, my major studies on. Was I looked at the the barriers and facilitators for the use of evidence in practice, and the biggest barrier that I found it what I found, and this was confirmed with doing research reviews on other healthcare professions, was your entry to practice education. You're just not introduced to things like philosophy. You're not introduced to do things about embracing uncertainty. You're not introduced to the idea that things might change. You're introduced that to the, and you learn this information like, this is the way it is. This is what you need to know to pass your exams. And when you pass your exams, then you have your license and you go out there and make money. And then what we have on top of that is we have an entire continuing education or professional development where to call it different things in different countries, um, industry, which then basically just hammers home the stuff that you learned in school, because that's what you're that's what you're looking for. You know, yeah, we learned a little bit of stuff on on specific exercise on some exercises, but I want to learn how to do the best exercise. How to do the the most? I want to learn how to activate specific muscles, or I want to learn, you know, whether you're doing or you're doing manual therapy. I want to learn how to do such and such joint mob or tissue release on something. That's what you're looking for because that's what you were taught at the beginning. Until we remove that, I don't think, I think it's going to be an uphill battle um, trying to trying to create change until those entry to practice levels change. Yeah, that is such a, um, a solution that appears the most obvious if we can start that process of critical thinking and philosophy of science and how to dissect and translate research uh, and critically appraise research um, from, from the beginning, then we can give people the skills and the tools to then filter all the information that we see. Because I, I think nowadays that there's a overabundance, overwhelming amount of information out there that we come across in person and on, online. So I think a lot of students, new grads have that real struggle to disseminate it all. Like who is right? What is right? Um, is a common kind of existential crisis or like a point oh. of anxiety. Cause, and I, I, I feel it myself. I think it's a, it's a very real um, experience. And I think, like you said, if we can from, from the get-go teach some skills and go through some of these much needed reflective conversations with uh, educators who role model the uncertainty role model that humility i think that's definitely a step in the right path yeah and i i for me personally in my journey i learned a lot when i was doing my graduate studies because i had like anything you have good instructors and bad instructors i had some really good instructors that were really good at 
questioning how you question. They were really good at making you ask better questions and then ask and then having to understand why. And and with and I grew mentally so much in that by being forced to think about my thinking. Why are you thinking about your thing? Why do you think that way? You know, and and, I, and anybody that, that that listens to this or anybody that, you know, ever takes a course, you know, I, I like to ask that question. Where does your knowledge come from? Why do you know what you know? It's a hard thing to answer. And you can't answer it quickly. But it, it, that if you, like you said, if you can put that type of information early on into, into a, an educational curriculum, early on into university, people, uh, at least at the very least, it plants some seeds. Yeah, I, th I think there's no um, like a quick fix solution. If we suddenly, you know, had um, even a whole semester on critical thinking, then the world would be just a much better place. That's not what we're claiming here. It's more, at least it adds an extra layer to people's filtering, to people's uh, capacity to think about their thinking, that metacognitive uh, ability. If, if you were to maybe outline some of the, the we'll go with the reasons why it's important why it's important to think about our thinking i mean it think it sounds pretty obvious to me but uh, the i guess a common uh, rebuttal is you know i can't use critical thinking with my patients there's, there's no practical use of learning philosophy how would you kind of respond <laughs> yeah uh this is a hard question because So in order to in order to to be mindful of our our, our critical thinking skills, right? In, in the in thinking about it, our thinking, is we need to really have a level of of humility, like we said before. Right? You need to understand that you don't know everything, um, because as soon as you 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 like I said before, if you think you know everything, then you're you're going to be you're 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 missing out on stuff. Um, but it's what happens with uh, clinical. Or clinical thinking skills is, is it it allows us to basically embrace the uncertainty of, of, of a situation and, and not having all of the answers is, is really key um it helps with our, our problem solving right because i mean without going through a process i can't think off the top of my head but there is like very specific like um clinical reasoning processes that we can follow where you ask yourself a series of questions right um and but if you if we just say look What's the value of thinking about our thinking? Uh, I would say it's going to give us uh, better tools for communication skills, right? It's going to allow us to reflect on what worked and what didn't work. Uh, it's going to uh, make us, you know, we're going to recognize patterns, but it doesn't mean those patterns are always the best answer, right? So being mindful, like, hey, I've seen this before, but it doesn't mean that's always what I need to do. Maybe there's something else going on in here, right? Uh, and it it also gives us, I think, more flexibility in our practice. So rather than just doing the same thing, like, oh, this is John with low back pain. This is what I do for everybody with low back pain. When we have a, a process of, of thinking, reflecting and being like, okay, well, why does John have low back pain? Does John need this exact treatment that I provided to other people before? And maybe this treatment I gave its treatment to him last time, he said it didn't work. Why would I do the same thing again? So it, it, I think the way I view it is it just allows us to, to think about our thinking and start to question what it is that we're doing and why is it that we're doing it. And when we apply that to the person, I think that's one of the basis 
basis basis of of um person-centered care right so understanding the, the the totality of the person's experience and what is it they want right what is it that they're uh, what is it that they're understanding what is the treatments have been done that have worked and haven't worked uh what other things are going on in their life you know we and i think it's important for us to to understand and talk about psychosocial aspects of care which also fits into our, our kind of critical thinking you know we're not and this is a this is a this is a thing right people often think well you're you, you're not counseling you're not you're not a psychologist you're not a social we're not saying that but we have to understand that these things might be impacting what's going on with them so yeah, i don't know if i answered your question i kind of just went on and on uh it's, it's such a yeah. hard point to even uh start a conversation with that kind yeah. of uh <laughs> rebuttal so i appreciate the explanation uh, my go-to response is pretty lazy and i go like what's your definition of practical but um th that often isn't helpful especially in online spaces oh, yeah. but um i think that the the clinical reasoning and the decision making the invisible stuff i think that is so undervalued often i think is super important um and the the skills to reflect on what we're doing and why we're doing it would be this what i'm hearing with yeah um, was... regards to clinical application of critical thinking um, yeah and maybe you can really notice it with the kind of questions that people ask. And uh, I kind of smirked myself uh, when you said, you know, asking questions about the questions that you're asking. Because um, <laughs> yeah. it, it's so true that uh, some of the with mentoring, the mentees or clinicians that uh, we see progress and growth in, it's not so much what the, um, the answers that they're giving as much as the questions that they're now asking compared to say a few months previously um, and we can notice the kind of questions that clinicians ask and learn from from that in itself because um, yeah, it really says a lot about people's thought processes and, and the underlying theories and frameworks that they have their clinical philosophy the the lens that they're seeing things through we could see someone with back pain through so many different lenses but, but with critical thinking we can notice that there's lots of lenses without critical thinking we're still stuck in the same Kind of set of glasses i love that that's such a good analogy it's yeah. great you're very good at like taking all the things and putting them into like little one or two sentences i like that daniel that's good but try. that's that's such a good analogy though i love that the you, the lenses you realize there's more lenses to look through right and then when we go back to the solutions and, and the problems of being our kind of entry to level education or entry level to our profession uh we only really are taught one lens not that there could be multiple ones to, to look through and and it, it when you have these conversations right it is very philosophical it's very kind of like gray and some people are like what are you talking about and it's the way i would the way i was that came came to kind of uh, appreciating the complexity of philosophy and critical thinking and i'm like i'm even then like i i know nothing right but uh i feel like i know more than i used to know was when you first went to, to school, so say you're a massage or manual therapist or exercise physiologist, and you're working with clients for the first time, and you're trying to do something with your hands, or you're trying to move, a, get them to do an exercise, and you're or you're trying to move a, a limb, it's really freaking awkward, and you have you feel like you have no idea what you're doing. It's kind of the same with this. You're going to feel awkward trying to, you know, what questions do I ask? What do I think? And, and I don't really know. And there's not a roadmap. And it's okay to feel confused.
Yeah. Just like that's normal. Learning something new for the first time or any yeah. kind of skill set when you're riding a bike, what happens in the first few attempts, unless you're like a genetic freak and I hate you for yeah. it, but it, you fall <laughs> and you learn from that experience. I think yeah. that the, the cognitive kind of skill is very similar to like a physical skill. I think there's a great mm -hmm. analogies for people to recognize that it's, it's, it's hard at the start. Um, I feel dumb when, when I have someone questioning my questions and that, that feeling of like, Oh shit, am I missing something? Um, that's also normal in the journey of yeah. reflecting on what it is that you're thinking about. Um, it, as an example for that humility, that value of, um, growing and changing our mind. Is there something that comes to mind for you recently where you've uh, changed your stance based on scientific consensus, even um, online community spaces and what you've seen and heard when it comes to clinical practice? What's something that comes to mind? Yeah, I've changed my mind on things all the time. I find I, I, I admit sometimes I kind of flip flop back and forth between things because I'm not really sure. And I think, I don't know, I think that's Hopefully it's normal. Uh, it's normal for me. Uh, so I'd say that probably in the last few years, well, I'll give you an example of a way I think clinically in a way I teach two things that I, I've, I'll try and be quick. I know I can be wordy. Um, the biggest thing for me uh, for, was probably from pushing, from distancing myself a little bit from the Mosley and Butler stuff. Uh, that they were, and I would say I really do credit them and the work that they did in the, in the 2000s about kind of moving that narrative from that hurt versus harm tissue base structural stuff and more towards this kind of uh neurophysiological you know there's there's a brain and a spinal cord and nociceptors and all this stuff and and folk and like moving towards that and i think that was really useful um but what i did find was that there was a lot of there was their their message was really strong regarding like explaining pain and providing pain science education. That was a big thing, right? And so like a lot of us, myself included, we, we go into that and we, we probably did too much pain explaining, too much trying to educate people, trying to talk to people like, oh, let's talk about your pain, you know, just to see if it might help. And I don't think it was very helpful. And, and, and my experiences of talking to other people that have gone through it, it's not as helpful as it was claimed to be, right? So I would say that uh, in the last few years, I've moved myself more away from having from like having these conversations with people about their pain unless they want to. Whereas before, I'd always be like, "Hey, do you want to talk about your pain? Do you want to? Do you want? Do you want?" And now I'm just kind of like, "You have any questions? Are you worried? You know, is there anything you want to know more about this?" Most people don't freaking care, right? Like they're just like they make me feel better. So that would be the one thing that I, I definitely definitely um, have moved away from uh, quite a bit. And I would say the thing that's probably challenge as obviously so clinical experiences of like didn't really support it you know and it made me think well maybe i'm just doing it wrong i, I don't know and, and i and i would say admittedly i didn't wasn't a big pain splinter but if people wanted to talk about it i would talk about it for the whole hour i had with them right you know so anyway um don't do that anymore but the, the biggest thing though was was you know starting to to read like the, the 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 critiques against them right putting myself in that uncomfortable situation and seeing that there was a lot of people out there really questioning the work that they or the, the their older work I, i'm not so familiar with some of their newer stuff but it still is quite heavily on the education aspect and, and not enough on the 
other stuff, which I think is is like movement and support and stuff as as much. Um, and so people like John Quintner um, and Milton Cohen have a bunch of stuff and Asaf. Some people probably know who he is right. They put a lot of really harsh critiques against that. I'm like, okay, this makes me feel uncomfortable, but I'm going to engage with this. I'm going to read it and I'm going to think about it. And it started to make sense when I started to to evaluate it that like, okay, take that information. If someone's in pain, we can probably make an assumption, should make an assumption that there's some type of activation going on in their nociceptive system or their pain system, whatever you want to call that. Um, and that if the person's in pain, then we have to believe them and that that's actual, there's something going on there. We don't need to explain that to them. And I think that was a shift for me. It was like, I wanted to explain it. I wanted to tell people. Now I don't really. I just, yeah, you're hurt. There's something going on that's telling you you're hurt. Let's see if we can find a way to mess it up and to, to make it feel better. And that's the kind of, I'm more kind of flippant in conversation with it than I would, when I would have been before based on science, based on evidence and, and my own uh, process. Um, and then the second part of that about um, education is that uh, I used to, the, the first number of years I, I taught, I spent a lot of time talking about all the things that were wrong. Here's all the problems without really providing enough solutions. Now I focus more on these are solutions. There's some, this is some issues, but let's focus on the things that we can change. And and I found that has been a, a more rewarding and um, process than, than all the debunking all the stuff yeah debunking to a point where it's just myth busting the entire time i think um that might not be uh lead people to i guess actionable steps and things that they can try out that might be different um kind of leaves people in the dark so i definitely uh have committed that mistake myself and still have to catch myself uh numerous times um in a similar way with the pain explaining and trying to explain away someone's symptoms or just thinking that if only they knew pain science, then they would be better. I think that's the kind of thought process as we're just new to pain science and we want to help people and it comes from a good place most of the time of like the best of intentions. Um, but yes, I think it's important to read the criticisms and that just helps us find out what, what the actual uh, knowledge is that we have. What, if we can test it and scrutinize it, then it ends up being better than it was in the past or our, our understanding of the science of pain can grow. I think um, that's important to know that our, our stances can change and looking at criticisms is one of the ways to um, really grow and learn and improve our understanding of any topic. And I'm thinking now the, we touched on a little bit of the abundance, the overabundance of overwhelming amount of information that's out there. And um, you can use your own experience if, if you are thinking of your own journey of crossing the chasm. And if you were crossing the chasm in 2024 as a, as a new grad or a clinician a few years out, what advice would you provide to yourself and to new grads now for critically appraising claims, for filtering the amount of information that they come across, and particularly on, on social media and online spaces? Yeah, the first thing I would say would be just take a deep breath. 
try and try not to learn all the things all at once. Try and focus on a top one topic at a time. And, and I think that way it'll make it more digestible. So say, say pain science, because that was my first thing was like, I just wanted to learn everything I could about pain science. So I read every paper, every book, uh, conferences, everything I could find online. I did all the things to learn all the stuff about that. And I would do the same now because that was, because I found for me that once I understood pain, if we can ever really understand pain, but once I had a, a different, a be, I'm going to say a less wrong understanding of pain, it everything else made sense. I was able to then say, hey, shoulder, neck, back, regional stuff, systemic things, you know, uh, you know, inflammatory conditions, you know, illnesses, disease processes, persons in pain. You understand that it's regardless of the mechanism, the experience of pain is similar or same. So for me, if we can understand the science of pain, it informs everything else. So that would be the first thing I would folks people get them to focus on. If you're like, I know everything about pain. I learned a lot of it in school and I would just find something else. Uh, find a population or a group of people that you're, that you like to treat and learn everything you can about them. Maybe it's athletes, maybe it's geriatrics, maybe it's pediatrics, maybe it's post-surgical, whatever it might be. And, and do it in digestible ways that way. The, I think another thing too would be to find, and I don't know if this is going to be something that people might disagree with, but I would say find some researchers that you like to read their stuff that makes sense to you and just read all their stuff. Like for me, I like Jeremy Lewis's shoulder stuff. So I read all of his things. There's other shoulder guys out there and I've read some of and girls, people out there. Uh, I read their stuff and, and it's good too, but I, I like his because I find it's, more often not kind of clinically relevant and, and interesting that's a good way to do it as well in my opinion yeah finding people that um i guess there's that uh, if reading papers back to back is is um uh, at a point where you're not really finding yourself engaging and there are some other topics that you might be more curious about i think that's also uh, a helpful way to just follow the the research trail we'll call it and then find and discover more because there's always going to be more things to read that you're never going to end that um never-ending list of tabs or favorites um, <laughs> to, to i think on my phone right now i have 234 tabs open yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it gets into the hundreds easily yeah if not it's thousands. ridiculous so i think yeah. normalizing that you know you can't read every single thing that there is on topics but focus on one thing at a time um is such a useful tip and I have to kind of remind myself to not get sucked into the multiple rabbit holes at once um, that can be so easy to to do especially online um, so finding a, a topic and then once you've gained like you said a less wrong understanding you can then have like logical reasoning to uh, expand that knowledge into other areas other topics that are similar to that we can it, we've kind of um, sharpened our lens and then we can use that new kind of lens and new understanding in musculoskeletal injuries, in sporting injuries, in uh, shoulder pain, knee pain, joint specific pain. And we're like, oh, okay. So this idea of the experience of pain and our growing understanding can then be applied into all these other uh, subtopics, we'll call it. And that really saves you time. I think it develops that ability to, um, to make sense of 
other related topics. Hundred percent. Yeah, and I think that's that's a great great way to start because otherwise you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks, right? And it's you're gonna you're you're gonna kind of know a little bit about a lot of things, but nothing about anything. And it's uh, and it's yeah, I I hundred percent agree with that. It's a great idea, great strategy. Nate, it's been a great chat. We could talk for hours, and we were oh yeah <laughs> the, the podcast, so we can talk for hours. Um, really appreciate hearing some of your insights and the amazing work that you do. So for those who are not aware of the online courses and your community where can we find details and where can people follow you and find you yeah uh my so pretty much all the places to get in touch with me are on my website which is ericpurvis.com so e-r-i-c-p-u-r-v-e-s.com uh, i have live courses there uh i'm not going to be in australia anytime soon so you have to travel if you want to take a live course uh, but i do webinars i do about six to eight webinars a year um, and then I've had people from all over the every continent attend those. They're usually low cost. They're usually about 90 minutes on a specific topic, fibromyalgia, neck, shoulder pain, low back, pelvic, uh, osteoarthritis. I got a bunch of those. Uh, and then uh, the, the what we talked about at the beginning of the episode today, that I have the manual movement therapist community. So if you go to my website, ericpurpose.com, and you click on courses, there's a tab for online courses. You go there, you'll see all my online self-directed stuff. Uh, and so it, you can, yeah, there's a bunch of things to choose. I'm adding stuff and changing things in there all the time. And social media, I I like Instagram and I like Facebook. Those are my social media of choice. So yeah, please follow me on there, just at Eric Purvis RMT. Uh, you search that and you'll be able to find me there. And yeah, if you listen to this podcast and you listen to Daniel and I chat, the yeah send me a message and let me know uh, that you listened and what you thought. That'd be amazing. So great. And we'll include all the links in our show notes, including the discount code. And by the time this is up, you'll have about a week and a half to access that discount code. So I'll have that and all the details on our show notes. But is there anything else that I've missed from today, Eric? No, I think that's that was great, Daniel. I really appreciate it. That was a really fun conversation. And uh, yeah, I'd uh, honored to be here. Thank you.